right, brothers, welcome back to another episode of Porn in the Gospel. I'm your host, Spencer Sutton, and I am back with you for episode two of How to Quit Porn. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, that's great. Um, if you wanted to see the slides that I'm going to be looking through, I'm going to be walking you through, you can absolutely go and check out our YouTube channel. You don't have to. You can listen to this in the car, and I'm going to explain everything for you, but some people like to see the visual. Um, and so really before we begin, what I want to do is ask you, if you are, if you've been a listener for a while, which I know many of you have, I'm going to ask you if you haven't already to leave a review uh, on Apple iTunes. And uh, I would appreciate it because it really helps other men find the show and when they're looking at, at um, options for, uh, for podcasts regarding this issue, it's super helpful for them to be able to read your comments. So just want to encourage you, if you would do that, if you found value in it, then leave a review. If you haven't, then you don't have to um, completely understand that as well. So let's get right into this. Uh, this is going to be, this is going to be a really, really um, powerful episode because there's a lot of key concepts. Now, some of these concepts that we're going to be talking about, we've gone through before in a separate episode, and not all of them, but just a couple of these that are uh, that I want to walk you through. So um, let's get going. So we're going to start with the circle of insanity. Now, I have done an entire episode on the circle of insanity. And if you want to go into great detail, you absolutely can go and check that out. <clears throat> but I'm going to describe it here just so you can, just so we can refresh our uh, memory, because I see this all throughout scripture, the circle of insanity. As a matter of fact, in the book of Judges, you see what's called the cycle of the judges, and it's very, very similar. It's very, very similar. The, the, people, are, um, the people get complacent. The people compromise. The people get captured. The people get crushed, and then the people call out, and it's this cycle of judges that repeats itself over and over and over. And God raises up judges to save the people over and over and over. So what does our own circle of insanity look like? Well, it starts with just the status quo. And the status quo is where you currently are in regards to your habits with pornography. It's the status quo, and many men that I've spoken with have, ha have been in the same status quo for years and years and decades, years and years and years and decades and decades and decades. And so any young man that I speak with, I, I just encourage them, I'm I implore, like, get help now before you blink and You've been struggling with pornography for 30 and 40 years. Like, get help. So it starts with the status quo. This is just your everyday life. And then what happens next? Well, there's a trigger. And that trigger 
is something that um, I mean, it could be a feeling. It could be something someone said to you. It could be uh, some something in, on Instagram. It could be whatever the whatever causes you to think that pornography might be a good idea. And and that's what even though you're telling yourself it's a horrible idea, even though you're telling yourself, "Oh, I won't do that," those are simply stories that you're telling yourself. And so the trigger creates a story that you tell yourself in your mind. And the story you're telling yourself is in order to justify what you're doing. So we have stories of justification. We have stories of entitlement. And so those stories are leading us to rituals, rituals that we all have. Guys, if you go back and look and examine what you do every time you act out, you'll notice that there are rituals you go through. And so we're going to get into that later on in a separate episode, probably in, in greater detail. But so it's the status quo. It's a trigger. There's stories you start telling yourself and then there start you start to have rituals. And then before you know it, you are acting out. And it's this. If I were drawing a circle, so I would start at the very top where status quo is, and there would be a trigger at the top, and then there's a downward spiral because we're telling stories and we go through rituals and then we act out. And before you know it, I'm at the bottom of the circle that I'm drawing and we call it the pit. We call it the pit. So you you were just you were just going along minding your own business and then a trigger and then you tell yourself stories and then you have rituals and then before you know it you've acted out pornography masturbation could be something else and you're in this pit of shame and what do you do in the pit of shame well you start to make promises to yourself and to god that you won't do it again and you feel really bad for a while. Sometimes it's a few days. Sometimes it's a few hours. Sometimes it's a week or whatever the case is. And then you start to feel normal again. You start to think, well, well, I can start praying now. It's, <clears throat> it's been long enough. And you come back up to status quo. So when I'm looking at my screen right here, I see there's this big circle I've drawn and at the top of the circle is the trigger. And then as I go down to the bottom of the circle, there's the stories and the rituals and then acting out, I'm in the pit of shame. And then I start to feel better and I start to draw the other side of the circle and I come back up to status quo, but guess what? Nothing's changed. And therefore all I'm doing is just coming back up and waiting for another trigger. And so most of us are looking for tactical solutions to keep us from doing this, but it doesn't work like that. Well, if I just have this app, well, if I just put this blocker on, well, if I just tell my accountability partner, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but those aren't the solution, the solution that you need. And so, 
now that we know this is our this is our habit all right so this is the this is this is the way it goes once we make the decision to change to do something different we've so these are the things that we have to these are the things that we have to do we have to examine our status quo we have to think about our triggers we have to pull apart our stories we have to understand our rituals and we have to depend on God's grace. And so what that means is you're going to have to change. Things cannot stay the same. You can't do the same things and expect a different outcome. It's just like in the last episode where we were talking about peacetime mentality versus a wartime mentality. If you were looking at the peacetime mentality list and you're like, oh yeah, I see myself, several of those are me. Well, guess what? Things are going to have to change to go into a wartime mindset. But this is the thing that we have to understand going into this is that there's going to be resistance. There's going to be resistance. And there's a, a model out there called the Virginia Satire. I think that's how you pronounce her name. <clears throat> Change model, which is, is very popular. You can Google it, but it's essentially saying that, hey, here's there, there's essentially five steps to change. And the old status quo is her first part. Then she talks about resistance. So one a change happens. So there's old status quo, then change happens. Anytime change happens, there is resistance. There's resistance. Now, this resistance can be from within or without. If you start making changes to your life, no doubt you will have questions from your friends, from your family, from your, from your work peers, whatever the case is. Now, they may just be inquisitive. They may just be wondering, well, hey, tell me why you're doing this. Or they could be more antagonistic. Why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. You're also going to receive resistance from within. Right? Because the truth is, is that you've enjoyed your sin. Or else you wouldn't keep doing it. It, maybe it helps medicate something else in your life. Maybe it helps sedate you from thinking about other issues in life. And I've heard all kinds of excuses. All kinds of excuses. But just understand, our excuses are just stories that help us justify why we do things over and over and over and over. So expect resistance. And then after, when resistance happens, after resistance, the next level is chaos. So there's tons of change. There's tons of change happening and then resistance. And then there could be chaos. And then next is the transforming idea and an integration into your life. Like, oh, this is the way it needs to be. And so I'm going to integrate this change this revolutionary change into my life and then guess what i'm going to have a new status quo and it's higher than the other one so i call this peak to pit 
So your old status quo is kind of where you are currently, maybe your peak, maybe you're in the pit. But when you change, when you overcome the resistance, when you get through the chaos by trusting and depending on God, then you integrate this new level of living into your life. And there's a new status quo. <laughs> I've got a group of friends and we were talking about this recently because we've all been on this journey of change. And hopefully we will, like all of us will until we die. Like, and this change, the way I like to think about it is it's, it is expansion. It is growing. It's sanctification. And we're all called to this. doesn't matter how old we are. We are called to change. And when we're called to change, there's always going to be resistance. But we ought to be able to look back and see, like, I should be able to look back and go, oh, this was the old me. And now look at the new me, the new status quo. And so once this status quo is established, then what is next? What is next? And this is in a healthy way. We're talking healthy. The resistance comes in two ways. Fear and lies. So fear could be that no one will love me the way I am. So I can't show you who I am, or you might leave me. Like when we're, when we think about changing, when we think about confession of sin, fear floods our hearts and minds and the thoughts and the stories that we tell ourselves are, is that no one will love me. Like I can't show them who I really am because they'll leave me. How many men have been trapped in the story? I was with a friend not too terribly long ago, and I asked him if he confessed his pornography and masturbation addiction to his wife. And he said, no, I can't. She sees that as adultery, and she would leave me. That's just a story he's telling himself. He has no facts. It hasn't happened. So do you see how this fear creates lies and that's the resistance the lies are we haven't been truthful about our condition to the ones that impact that it impacts the most right so we're fearful we're telling ourselves lies and then we tell other people lies like this is something you need to know you are the biggest liar that you know you're the biggest liar That's it. You're telling yourself stories over and over and over and over again, unless you, and unless you say enough and start telling yourself the truth and walking in the light as he is in the light, you're going to remain in fear. Psalm 56, one and four says this one through four. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? How do we combat fear and lies? We combat it by trusting in God. How do we trust in God? How do we grow in our faith in God? By 
reading his promises, believing his promises, meditating on his promises, praying his promises. Look at what the psalmist here is doing. He's telling himself a different story, a story based on truth. And this is what he says. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? These are not just positive affirmations. He is going back to God's word. And he's looking back at God's word. And he's like, look at God, look at how you've taken care of my people, your people, all of these years, never forsaking them. So when I'm afraid from all of my enemies, when I'm afraid from resistance, when I'm afraid to tell the truth, I'm going to trust in you instead. First John 4.18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He, he also says that God is love. Just before this, God is love. So there's no fear in the true knowledge and understanding and relationship of God. But his love, like God's love, should cast out every fear from us. Why? Because we are perfectly loved and accepted Through Jesus Christ, through the blood, the blood of Christ makes us righteous before God. So we're perfectly accepted. So that means that I can come and confess all my sins and not worry about what someone else says about me. Like the psalmist says, what can man do to me? What can flesh do to me? Instead, I throw myself down at the mercy of God. And when he looks at me, he looks at the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's perfect love. And when I have perfect love, it, when I realize that perfect love, it casts out all fear. But what we tend to do, guys, is we tend to shrink the cross. So perfect love is seen in the cross and experienced in the cross, but we shrink the cross. And how do we shrink the cross? We shrink the cross in many, many, many ways. We take the cross, which should be just glorious, should be glorious to us and something that we just are amazed in every single day. We take it from this glorious thing in our life and we shrink it down to where it's relatively insignificant. It happened it, like the cross to, to many of us just becomes what well, could just become a symbol in our house, but it also can become just what we see for our salvation. Like get me to heaven, get me out of this earth and get me to heaven. The cross does that, but we miss so much of the beauty of the cross when we think of it for salvation only. Like the cross is meant for our sanctification, for our joy in this life and in the life to come. So what are the ways that we shrink the cross? So the way the gospel is supposed to work, when we come to faith in Christ, we have a growing awareness of God's holiness 
Like we understand, we start to see God for who he is. And we're amazed and dumbfounded that he would even adopt us as his children. Why? Because we also have a growing awareness of our sinfulness. Like growing awareness of God's holiness and a growing awareness of our sinfulness creates a big vision and a big view of the cross. And we go, Jesus Christ, you did this. Like, who am I? And so we start to like just find comfort in the cross. We start to find joy in the cross. We, we, we are blown away by the gospel. Again, this is through a growing awareness of God's holiness and a growing awareness of our sinfulness. And the only thing that can, the only thing that can put these two things together in our life is the cross. So it's a beautiful picture. As, as we grow in awareness of his holiness and our sinfulness, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our experience. But how do we, how do we shrink the cross or make it small? We do it by pretending and we do it by performing. We pretend that we have our life together and that's a lie. And we perform acting like God I can, let me do this for you and this for you and this for you. I was even just reading this morning, the story of Mephibosheth, which you may recall was Saul's, um, uh, it was Saul's son, Jonathan. It was his son. And David had defeated all of his enemies and he didn't kill Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan died on the field of battle and essentially secured the kingdom for David. And so when David had conquered all the enemies around them and there was peace in the land, he, he, he asked people, he said, is there not anyone of Saul's family that, that I can show mercy to or grace to? And someone came forward and said, well, there is one, there's Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and he's lame in both of his feet. And so David said, go get him, bring him here. And the first thing that Mephibosheth did when he got in front of David, he said, I am your servant. Now, let's stop right there because this is the way we come to God. I am your servant. In other words, let me do for you. This is performing. But the truth about Mephibosheth was he was crippled and lame in both feet. It repeats it twice. Verse 3 and verse 13 of 2 Samuel 9. But that's not what David's like. No, I mean, you can't even, you can't even take care of your own house, your own crops. Like you have to have people serve you. You can't serve me. No, no, no. That's not what this is about, Mephibosheth. This is about you being adopted into my family. You're going to come and eat at my table like one of my sons. So we come and we want to do, do, do things for God, but he's like, no, this is like, you are a child of mine. And so how do we pretend? Well, we pretend by doing several different things. One of the things that I know that I used to do a whole bunch was I used to compare myself to other people. And it's like, this was not 
I wasn't thinking this, but in essence, this is what I was doing is, Hey, if I can, if, if their sins are bigger than mine, then it makes me feel better about my sins. So there's comparison. There's lying. That's how we pretend excuse making false righteousness. And then how do we perform several ways that on how we perform? I mean, and part of it is job righteousness. Like this is something that I struggle with because I was leading this nonprofit called never thirst. And we were doing incredible things um, in the poorest parts of the world. And so there was a bit of job righteousness, mercy righteousness. Well, if everybody cared for the poor and the lost, like I did, theological righteousness. Well, my views are better than somebody else's views. Legalistic righteousness. I grew up with this. I grew up with this. And when we do these things, what does it do? It shrinks the cross down. So the cross doesn't look as glorious as it really is because I can perform and pretend my way. And really what this is all about is this is looking, this is all about looking good in front of other people. That's what this is. So if you're a brother in Christ and you've been struggling with pornography for a long time and you haven't told anybody and you haven't shared with anybody and you're hiding and you're in isolation, then this is what you're doing. And the cross doesn't even look glorious to you. I know because it didn't to me either. And it keeps us weak and it keeps us ineffective. It keeps us from worshiping. Why would we want to, why would we want to spend time in the morning, like meditating and reading and studying God's word when we don't even think the cross is all that incredible? So I want to, so when this happens, when, when we shrink the cross, it's essentially we're doing something that's illustrated by a wall. And I got this illustration from my friend, Joe Beam with marriage helper. Uh, he has a workshop and, and this is a, this is one of the concepts they talk about a lot, which, um, is so very, very, very true. So when we are young, we are taught in order to be accepted, we must act a certain way, talk a certain way, behave a certain way. Like this is given to us by our parents. And it's not, I'm not saying this is wrong, but to be accepted in our, in our tribe, in our culture, we do these things. People like us do things like this. And the problem is, especially as we grow up, we're not, typically we're not taught to confess our sins. We're typically not taught that, you know what, we're, we're all screwed up. Like our parents probably have not done a good job of being very transparent with their own sins. And so therefore we think they don't sin. Everybody in church doesn't sin. And therefore we put up this wall and we paint a picture on the outside of the wall of who we want people to see us as, or know us as. And so therefore they would accept us. If they, if I just drew this picture good enough, then they're going to think that's the real me, but really 
The real me is hiding behind the wall. I'm hiding behind the wall. And I'm afraid. And I'm telling myself lies and stories. And I'm telling other people lies and stories because if they really knew the struggle I have with pornography, they would not accept me. They would leave me. And this is our biggest fear. Our biggest fear in life is being known for who we are fully and not being accepted. And so when we do this, we shrink the cross because we're hiding as opposed to taking bricks down bit by bit by bit and trusting in God and seeing the cross and his forgiveness as something glorious and beautiful. And the beautiful thing about this is, is that the power of the cross becomes a weapon to us becomes a weapon because the lies of our enemy are addressed in the gospel. They're addressed with a new identity, a new belief system. They're addressed with the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with the word of God. It destroys and defeats all of the enemy's strongholds and lies that run rampant in our life. So I want to encourage you, brother, if you've been hiding behind the wall for years and decades, now this, the wall doesn't come down in one big blow. Sometimes it may. Now, God may take the wall down for you. This is what was true in my life. I was hiding behind the wall, hiding behind the wall. It led me down a path that was destructive to my family. Like it almost destroyed my family. If you want to listen to that story, you can go and listen on the podcast. I think it's second episode. I tell all about that, but, but my story is not unique. My story is echoed over and over and over and over in the lives of men, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christian men, just like me. You start by taking one brick down and you share that brick with somebody who you can trust. And you start to reveal and show them who you really are. This is how we build what's called intimacy. Intimacy, not, it's not about sexual intimacy. It's about true connection. This person knows me for who I am and still fully accepts me. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is God is behind your wall with you. He sees you 100% the way you are. He knows you. He knows every thought, every anxiety, every lustful thought he knows, and he fully accepts you because Christ died on this glorious cross for you to adopt you to the praise and the glory of God's name so that we would look at the cross and go, this is the most incredible message I've ever, ever believed. Like, God, you love me and accept me. And, and then by his grace, 
And by his power and strength in his word, he will allow us to take another brick off and another brick off and another brick off. And then once you understand this, like I'm looking at a picture on my screen. So if you're listening on the podcast, this is for people on YouTube, looking at a picture on my screen and it's got this brick wall and the bricks, there's a huge hole in all the bricks where they've been taken down and there's this green pasture and that's freedom. Like to me, that's a picture of freedom. There's freedom in the cross. There's freedom in the gospel. But most of us stay trapped behind a wall, so fearful that somebody will see us. But God already sees us and God already accepts us if you are his child. So, I'm going to talk just real briefly about the triangulation of love. This is a concept by Robert Sternberg. You can go and look up this research, but essentially I'm not going to spend a lot of time. The core components of a true, healthy love relationship, there's three components. There's commitment, there's intimacy, and there's passion. Those three you have to have those three for your love to be healthy. And this is for, uh, he, when he wrote this, this is all about, or when he did all this research, this is all about your marriage and your relationships like that. But what we're talking about is we're talking about our relationship with God. And the same thing is true. There is a commitment. There needs to be a growing intimacy And when there's a commitment and a growing intimacy, there's going to be a growing passion, right? So there's this passion of, I want to spend more time with you. Intimacy is you, God, know me like every bit of me and accept me. This is growing in intimacy. And this creates this passion that we want to know more about God. We want to know God more and And he's intimate with us, so he reveals himself to us through his word and through prayer. And then we have this commitment to him. We have this commitment to him. So before Christ, I had this commitment to God that was before I had faith in true faith in Christ. I thought I was a believer, but I wasn't. It was, but I just had this commitment. I will. I'm going to uphold the law. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to have, I have this moral commitment, but I couldn't even do that. But I thought I did, but I thought I did. But commitment is birthed out of intimacy and passion with God. Then true, then he gives us the strength to commit and walk in his ways. Not perfectly. We're not perfect, which means we still need the cross. We still need the gospel every single day. The real question that you need to answer, the biggest question you need to answer as a brother in Christ, before you keep going down this journey, is do you want to get well? I have a lot of guys that come to me and say they want to get well, but they don't really. They say it because they feel like they should say it. And I get that. 
I get it. Like I have been there and done that. I have said over and over and over and over that I want to get well. I confess to God when I was in my pits, when I was in my pit, I was telling God, I want to get well. I'll do, you know, I'll do anything, but yet I wasn't willing to do anything. John 5, 1 through 6 says, after this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the sheep gate in Jerusalem. There's a pool called Bethsaida in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's me and you, by the way. One man, man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. How many of you have been addicted to porn for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 38 years. Absolutely. There are some of you over 30 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? That was a simple question, but it seems a very strange question for Jesus Christ to ask a man who knew had been there, disabled, blind, lame, paralyzed. He knew this about this man, but yet he asked him, do you want to get well? Why didn't he just heal him? And the truth is, is that we get comfortable in our sin. We get comfortable with our condition. The fact that you're listening to this or watching this, I hope it means that you aren't comfortable. That you're deciding to do something about it, but you are the only one that can answer this question. Do you want to get well? The man started making excuses. Well, I don't have anybody to take me in the pool or people get in, in there before I do. What are your excuses? What have you been saying? In the last episode, part one of this whole series, I'd asked, well, I'd talked to you about commitment. And commitment is simply being willing to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. That's commitment. Huge difference from being interested in something. If I'm interested, then I think I should do this or I should do that. But commitment is I must at all cost. So you have to answer that question. Do you want to get well? And I'm going to encourage you, if you are alone, in other words, nobody else knows about this struggle, I'm going to encourage you to find one person to talk to, at least one at least one, one brother that you can trust to talk to. Now, for some of you men who are married, the, the thought of going to a friend and talking about this, and you're thinking, well, they would go back, they may go back, and they may tell their wife, their wife is friends with my wife. So you may, you know, listen, you need to tell someone and I, like I've talked to countless men who've said, well, I had an accountability partner. I talked to him about it, but then we just stopped talking about it. And that's typically the way it goes because 
if you're both struggling, then neither one of you are truly finding freedom and therefore you're not asking. And secondly, it's just a really uncomfortable conversation. We would rather be comfortable and remain in our sin than be uncomfortable and get help. We can't do that, guys. I'm going to encourage you, find somebody. Like the value, when I think about the value of a band of brothers or a brother, I think about Samson and David and Solomon, sexual sin, sexual sin, sexual sin, nobody around, nobody to confide in, nobody encouraging them, nobody holding them accountable. And listen, it's God's will that we bear one another's burdens. This is what we went over in the last episode, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. We are called to bear one another's burdens. And the truth is, is that silence is one of our greatest enemies. We believe no one struggles like we do. Well, if they knew what I looked at, or if they knew what I did, Look at the ministry of Paul. Paul always had accountability around him, mainly in the people that he was discipling, Timothy, Barnabas. And and think about this. Like Paul was so consumed with the mission of God, he didn't let anything derail him. And so many of us are stuck in porn because we have no vision for our life beyond the American dream to make money, to retire and hang out and do nothing and play golf. Paul was consumed with a vision that God gave him for his life. And it's the same vision he gives all of us. It's go and make disciples. That's all Paul. That's, that was his mission. That was his vision. And it should be ours as well. So who are we surrounding ourselves with? It's important. And I will say this, shame is something that keeps us trapped, but sharing, sharing your thoughts, sharing your struggles with somebody can be a shame killer because you know what you're probably going to hear on the other end of your confession is, hey, brother, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I want to pray for you? How can I help you? What, what do you need from me? And that helps, like when, when somebody does that for you, they come into your story, not with a judgmental attitude, but with grace and with mercy and sharing. So sharing can be a shame killer. So your assignment, should you want to do this. This is completely up to you. I would say I mentioned about getting a journal. I would journal about your fears and the stories you have about those fears. Like what are your biggest fears? Then find at least five passages that addressed fear and trust in God in the word. Write a list of at least three brothers you could talk to about this issue. This is assignment part two. So part A is journal about your fears and the stories. And then part, that's part A. Part B is write at least, write a list of at least three brothers you could talk to about this issue. And then write out what you would tell them. What would you say to them? 
there's a lot of fear, I think, when we start thinking about like journaling is one thing because it's going to be private, but writing a list of men and then writing out what you would say to them, there's always, again, there's going to be that resistance, right? Just that resistance. So I want to encourage you with a story I read this morning from 2 Samuel 10. Joab was taking David's army out to war against these big armies. There's, they were on all sides. 2 Samuel 10 verse 9 says, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the, Syri against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Amor Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Amorites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So brother, in closing, this is what I want to say to you. As you start thinking about confessing this issue to somebody, to a brother, I want to tell you, be of good courage. Be courageous for the glory of God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. This is about fear. And this is about faith. Like, may the Lord give you greater faith than you have fear. Be of good courage. Like, God has a mission for your life a vision for your life, and it's to bear fruit. Now, I don't know what that fruit looks like for you. Are you going to bury your talents in the dirt? You're going to bury them and not do anything with the incredible things that God has done for you and given you and what he expects of you. I'm going to tell you, be of good courage. Be courageous for God's people and for the glory of God. And may he do what seems good to him. Brothers, that is all I have for this episode. I just want to encourage you. I just want to see you walking in freedom. I want to see you growing in faith, overcoming temptation, overcoming the resistance that is surely going to come from within and from without to the glory of God. All right, guys, I will uh, be back with another episode, episode three, actually. This is episode two. If you hadn't listened to one, go back and listen to it. And we're going to keep marching on and do the assignments. I guess that's the last word I, I'm going to tell you. So each one of these in this series, these episodes are going to have assignments at the end of it. I want to encourage you to do them. This is how you start to put things into practice. All right, brothers, I will see you on the next episode.